The information presented is in no way to be considered as a standard of care, and the content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnoses, or treatment. The information is provided with no guarantee. All content is for informational purposes only and does not constitute the providing of medical, legal, or regulatory advice. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to this edition of Blue Crew Medicine. Uh, today, we're going to do vital signs, so what really matters. Uh, we're joined today by the Don Moore, uh, Air Care 2 Base Lead CCP, Benjamin White, Ben White, uh, one of our Air Care 2 CCP RNs, and over there on the end, we've got Mr. Aiden Dancy, uh, one of our nurse practice in the PZR, and he graces us with his presence over here at MCS with a couple different roles as a air care flight nurse and peace transport RN as well. Um, welcome, guys. Glad to have you here this morning. Um, so let's get right into it. So the general idea behind this podcast is, uh, in this episode, is more about vital signs, some of the fancy calculations you can do in medicine. But of those, what actually matters or what's going to dictate your care. Um some of the stuff we've kind of come up with a small list of things that we use every day that actually matter. Some of them we'll talk about that they may be really fancy. We may not actually use them. Uh, first one we're going to get into is probably the one I would just go ahead and generally say we use the most, uh, which is MAP or mean arterial pressure. Um, so it's the average atrial pressure throughout the cardiac cycle, um, from systole to diastole, uh, what do y'all think about MAP? How do you, how do you use it? When do you use it? I'm a big component of MAP. I think uh, a lot of times we use MAP in both trauma and medical. Uh, MAP is a driving pressure for me or a driving factor for me on when to pull the trigger on pressers and so on. Yeah, I mean, MAP, everybody gets so axle wrapped about a systolic pressure i think you know you always hear that 90 or 70 or whatever it is but i want to know what it is constantly i'm looking at my map like just last night you know have a kid an asthmatic kid that tanking his pressure after we do some treatment on him and you know they're not have nurses coming to me worried about his systolic blood pressure and yeah but his map's still holding 60 65 so I know we're okay there, but I just like a more general idea of what's constantly happening, not, you know, in versus out with systolic and diastolic. Yeah, I mean, looking at MAP, you're looking at, we're looking at, are we, are we uh, perfusing our end organs? That's what's most important. Not looking at a top number or bottom number. Are we perfusing the kidneys and the brain? Those are the two big things that we're looking at, and that guides us to Ben's point of, of when do we pull triggers on pressers or volume if they're volume down, speaking about trauma. And I, I think that's more of a driving number. Um, you know, figuring it up in your heads, uh, you know, the, the formula is there, but almost every monitor calculates map for you now in the little parentheses number. Um, and so having that number in parentheses is, again, probably one of the more focal, focal points compared to a systolic or a diastolic, uh, just to see what our residual pressure is at the end of the day to the kidneys and the brain and so forth. It's also becoming more of the staple in literature as far as like your guiding numbers for your head bleeds or permissive hypotension in your trauma patients. I know we talked about it yesterday, you know, actually hearing 
a number for permissive hypotension and you base that off your map I and mean, that may be different you know depending on where you work or your protocols what map you're looking for but that seems to be where the literature is headed and getting away from the you know 180 over 100 for your strokes and things like that everybody's looking at a map map of you know i don't want to talk too much about disease processes but you get with you know 65 typically is a hey i'm perfusing organs in adults um map of 90 and some most ichs if they've got a map of 90 hey everything's perfusing okay you get less than 90 you start thinking about pressors or how you're going to augment blood pressures so using those numbers i, I don't like hard and fast numbers I like to trend them there's but you uh, i think aiden brought up a good point we were talking about earlier was don't forget the one outlier um, oh yeah you, you know you look at trends and all of your vital signs but you know everybody and i think we're all guilty of it you get that one bad blood pressure like oh well recycle the cuff or make sure it fits or get a smaller one yeah somebody give me a smaller cuff move it down on the wrist or something see if we can get a better pressure well you got to pay attention to that especially if your other vital signs are kind of riding the line like if your heart rate is you know borderline tachycardic or you know whatever it is you're looking at but you get that one you know issue of, or incidence of hypertension just because the next one's good doesn't mean you shouldn't pay attention to that one. It's kind of what Will's speaking to, and you may hear us allude to that as we go on. So I think everybody gets happy with the systolic number. I mean, I, yeah, from pre-hospital world, that's where I mean that that's the number everybody wants, right? You know, greater than 100, maybe greater than 90, but that map becomes super important. You can have a a systolic pressure of 80 to 100, maybe over 100, and still not be perfusing your 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 end organs and so that map becomes really important um not not trying to look at the systolic number i know everybody gets wrapped up in that that's the one everybody focuses on but actually taking a peek over into the the number in the parentheses on the on the monitor um real quick while we talk about blood pressures talk about talking about using the cuffs and art lines um just just remember art lines are more accurate they're actually an artery I don't remember the exact number, but it's somewhere between 10 to 15% cuff pressures are usually higher than what the arterial pressure through a waveform actually are. Then you go and you can discuss about central art lines versus peripherals and all those other things, but know that an art line is a little more accurate, especially when you're talking about maps. And, and that 10 to 15% is a relative number, right? Yeah. We all learn when we put blood pressure cuffs on that we put a blood pressure cuff on that's too loose and our pressure is low. We put it on too tight and our pressure is high. And so you're talking about a, a 10 to 15 15% number is based off a perfectly placed, appropriately tightened blood pressure cuff. You're also talking about vibrations of the helicopters. You're talking about uh, potholes on the ambulances and talking about patients that aren't maybe cooperative and moving around. And so you get all of those variables with a non-invasive blood pressure, uh, whereas your arterial line is, is internal, it's invasive, um, it's in a closed system. And so all of those variables, um, while there are a couple, I guess, that could vary that, but uh, you get much more accurate and consistently, consistently see 30, 50 millimeters of mercury difference in, in blood pressure versus the arterial lines. Um, so that hugely important. And it, let's, I mean, you talk about using art lines as well, just from a patient standpoint downstream. That's less, that's less IV sticks, that's less punctures of the skin, that's easier blood draws, that's easier trending, that's, um, 
you know, left ventricular function, all of that stuff downstream. And so having that, that art line or placing that art line in somebody that you're kind of worried about a, a vital sign issue, uh, and you're also getting a more accurate map like we just talked about. And like Aiden said just a second ago, you know, we, we hit that cycle button and we don't get the pressure we want. What do we do? We turn around and hit it again, cross our fingers. Yep. Hands down, the worst thing we can do, you're going to get an even more inaccurate blood pressure at that point. you got to let that those uh, vessels have time to relax and go back into what is considered a normal state for them before you cycle another pressure. Um, so to piggy on what Don just said, every time that left ventricle contracts, that's your most accurate blood pressure at that point. And long term, that's your best trending tool. Moving on down with blood pressures, let's talk a little bit about pulse pressure. Um, so pulse pressure to me is a great way to kind of tell what's going on with the patient, how the patient's trending, but where they are as far as stroke volume, cardiac output, and then also their SVR. So when you think systolic pressures, think more of stroke volume and cardiac output. Um, when you think diastolic pressure, you think more of your systemic vascular resistance or your SVR. Um, so when we talk about pulse pressures, it's either normal, which is kind of relative. It's usually about 40 points is normal. Um, so that comes from 120 over 80 or 130 over 90. And then low or narrowed is more of those two numbers come closer together. And then wide, they can be vastly different. Um, depends on what literature you read as far as numbers about what's considered wide or narrow. But for me, if I notice it getting narrower, I take the second or third blood pressure cuffs to the first 15 minutes of when I have a patient. I start narrow, narrow, narrow. I start thinking one way versus wider, think another. Um, so we think narrow, typically when you – pull up literature it's less than 25 percent of the systolic value um i think trauma i think hypotension hypovolemia cardiogenic shock um aortic valve stenosis or obstructive shock like a uh, pericardial tamponade um is there anything else really on narrow y'all think of or clues you in there on the pulse pressure i, I look at pulse pressure as that if there was one thing that you could trend to tell you how your patient is benefiting off your treatment, you can look at pulse pressure. I agree with what you're saying there. But it is one of those that that when you initially take that pressure and look at it, if without a good initial pressure, your pulse pressure is not going to do anything for you. But it is definitely that guy sitting on the seat beside you that kind of lays to the side and people overlook that can really be an early precursor of what's about to take place with your patient. Um, I think uh, something that's kind of overlooked is the wide pulse pressure more than anything else. Yeah. Um, so it's commonly associated with ICP. I think that's where a lot of textbooks lean toward is, you know, have really wide pulse pressure, think ICP. It's a cerebral perfusion pressure compensating. But something else is distributive shock in general um, with wide pulse pressure and thyrotoxicosis as well. Um, some other things you mentioned, aortic regurge, uh, pregnancy, it's common. It's normal. So it's, it's normal for pregnant patients to have a wide pulse pressure. Mm -hmm. They're having to compensate for that fetus they're going inside, right? Um, the one that scares me the most when I pull up a list is aortic dissection. Um, and then anemia, uh, think of blood viscosity. I think that chronic anemics, not so much the acute trauma bleeding out, but chronic anemics, that usually happens. Um, it's just the viscosity of the blood itself. And then heart blocks can be another one. But I think it's more of a late sign for me when I usually see it in heart blocks. No. Um, I think when you talk about pulse pressure, you're also 
to Ben's point, it's a guy sitting next to you on the seat that um, we can use when it's beneficial for us. It's not, not something that we just jump right out at. But we've got to have something else coupled with it to be able to, to kind of narrow down our differentials. You know, speaking of, um, you know, a low, a narrow pulse pressure tamponade, right? Well, you also have the JVD, and you also have the muffled heart tones, and you have the, the trauma, but the blunt trauma type deal. And then when you look at the wide pulse pressure, you do have that, but what else do you have? Do you have the, the mentation problems from an ICP thing, or do you have, like you said, aortic dissection? Do you have left and right radial pulses that are different than each other? Is one stronger or weaker? Did, did you even check that from an assessment standpoint, right? We, we, those are things that we skip as as we move along and in our career we get complacent and we forget to check some of those things and so having the pulse pressure again to Ben's point is snapshot pulse pressure probably not going to tell me a whole lot but it may start giving me some thought processes of some roads to go down but then putting all of the pieces together with that pulse pressure can narrow you down to to what are we actually chasing here yeah, and specifically when you look at wide pulse pressure, just going through that list, I mean, the first thing I think of there is just what's my heart rate? I pair that with my heart rate, and I can, you know, tachycardic versus bradycardic, I can cut that list in half one way or the other, and that eliminates one half of that as to what I'm thinking. You know, they're super tachycardic. You know, this patient's clammy looking. I'm automatically thinking shock, you know, septic shock or anaphylactic shock or something like that. Um, you know, vice versa, which is the big one, like everybody talks about, you know, if they're bradycardic, you know, everybody's looking ICP changes, what's their mentation, what their pupils look like, you know, seizure activity, things like that. And you also have to take into consideration to, you know, look at normal pathology in that particular patient. An elderly patient's going to have a natural increase in systolic pressure and versus, a normal healthy person so we have to be able to look at that patient and understand or also look at the medications that the patient's on or the past medical history and expect to see a widen versus narrow so there's where we have to start becoming somewhat of a medical investigator and go okay i have to draw my line in the sand on what do i think is pertinent for this patient it's in, you know what don says it, this is going to couple and and going to change with every patient we put in front of us. It's not a hard, steadfast number that we got to say, well, that's 40 is good for this patient. That's where we're going to stay at. Well, you know, this patient might actually live in the 50 to 60 range. So we have to be able to look at that stuff and understand whether we're talking trauma or medical. I think that's one of the, probably one of the hardest things, uh, speaking of learning how to write reports and QAs and QIs and stuff like that and, and using the word normal. Uh, we're talking about vital signs as a whole, but you know, you call a report to somebody all the time. Patients got normal vital signs. Well, that maybe, maybe, maybe not. I mean, we we talk about normal from a textbook version. To Ben's point, normal's relative to the patient you're taking care of, right? And so, what I like to use and what I try to use is the words hemodynamically stable, because those numbers could be eye popping from a from a textbook. But that patient still could be hemodynamically stable because of that patient, their comorbidities, their pathology, and they're stable. And so trying to get away from normal, the word normal in vital signs is a trend that we should start pushing towards and start using different terminology. Looking at the big picture and not trying to figure out a 120 over 80 with a heart rate of 80 and respirations of 12 sat in 100%, right? And so very few people 
like, like it's, it's to the point where you see that number and it prints out. You're like, oh, that's a normal blood pressure, you know. And so because you never see that, you don't ever see what you see in the textbook because everybody's everybody's got their own pathology, their own comorbidities, their own factors. And so trying to lean away from you know, again, just one of my pet peeves is the words when you hear people call a radio report or give a bedside report, and the patient has normal vital signs. Or within normal limits. Within normal limits. What's the, what's the limit? Well, yeah, I mean, what, what's, what is the limit, yeah. right? I mean, well, my limit, arm set at I, For that, I need to know the patient's age, and I need top and bottom yeah. and ranges. Like, yeah, exactly. And has it always fallen in there? You right. can't do that. Mm-hmm. So moving on from blood pressure, temperature. I think we talked about it in a previous podcast we were talking, episode we were doing and um, how COVID kind of brought the thermometers back on everybody's trucks or back in aircraft. Uh, how do you use temperature? How do you think of temperature? Is it something you use every day or is it something patient-specific? Um, Come from the Peds world, we use it every day. Yeah, It's huge for us. I mean, when I think of temperature, you know, I think of my trauma patients and then my age extremes. I'm looking at my kids and my elderly, those that are frail, um, where your autoregulatory centers in the brain aren't functioning. They're either immature or they're starting to go the other way, right? They're starting to kind of fade off and they're not maintaining temperature like they should. So, you know, outside of trauma, I think everybody kind of knows we don't want our trauma patients cold. I think that's been beating our heads and EMS and emergency medicine over the last few years. but still i see it every day Uh, you know these kids come in cold for whatever reason you know it could be just because mom had them you know exposed or you were working on them at the outside hospital or in the ambulance and they were exposed and all of a sudden i'm trying to figure out why their temp's 93 degrees it's just something to be cognizant of um you know treat your fever if you know if it's a high temp don't be that guy that's kind of my pet peeve too especially you know we get in the back of the helicopter and i've had partners like I'm not treating that fever. I'm like, well, why not? I mean, <laughs> you're doing something for their heart rate. You're doing something for their blood pressure. You, if you can give them some Tylenol or some Motrin, do that. Um, you don't want to sit there with fever and feel miserable. So, it's also you know another reason I tell people to treat fever in kids is it can tell you a lot just by how that kid looks with fever versus without fever. So you can have a child that comes in to your door or in the back of your aircraft or ambulance. It's a temp of 102, but they're also breathing 50, 60 times a minute, and their heart rate's 180. Well, is their heart rate 180 and they're breathing 50, 60 times a minute because they have some underlying, you know, either respiratory process or sepsis component, or is it because they have a fever? If I can get that fever down, then I can tell a lot about the rest of these vital signs and what's going on with this kid. Um, Tack on to that, the how they react to that first dose of Tylenol Motrin yeah. also tells you where they are in the disease process. Exactly. If they yep. immediately come back down first dose of Tylenol, cool. This is uh right. we're going to see 23 yeah. hour OBS. We're, we're, we're good. In this earlier. We're good. Yeah. yeah. If and it's, then, if it's hanging up there, yeah, you know, you know, well, we've got something going on. Like it's probably a little bit sicker, but there's my soapbox for temperature. <laughs> also think about it too, as, as you know, think about an initial insult to the body, trauma, medical, whatever. It, yeah. It's part of, Right, the response system. So, we got a patient get to double what you said there. Responded quickly with a temperature change or antipyretic or whatever we're doing to treat the, the fever. Responded quickly, so it lets us know this insult to the body, trauma, medical, whatever is. We're in the early stages of it, and we all understand the fact that early stages is easy treatment. 
you know. So. And I don't want to get too far down the, the pathology part from, from this particular discussion, but, I mean, a byproduct of cellular metabolism is heat. heat. Yep. So if we have a cold temperature, if we don't have the temperature, then we're not perfusing right. something somewhere. And so we got to figure out that. And I think the peds world, to Aiden's point, I think they are um, – I think this is their bread and butter. I think the adult world got away from it. I think, to your point last, uh, I think, podcast that I was on, we talked about the thermometers come back with COVID and everybody's checking temperatures now. And so even more so, they probably are still on your truck, but have you used them in the last month? Have you checked the temperature on that adult patient that was short of breath and had rails? Did you rule out, is this pneumonia or is this CHF? Because if I give my pneumonia patient Lasix to try to pull that off, and now I consolidate all that pneumonia in there, and now I've made that patient's ICU stay much, much longer and more difficult to be able to get all that stuff out. And so temperature is one of those, uh, it's like we talked about the podcast last time, it's one of those that you learn and you know it's there. You never really use it probably as much as you used to. I think COVID has that's been a positive. It's kind of brought back the importance of, of looking at that temperature and, again, to your trending how do they react to that first antipyretic? You know, uh, the other thing is talking about treatments real quick is were they underdosed? Yeah. Was this was this a I give them um, you know 15 mils just because that's what I wanted to give them, or did we truly weight base what we give that patient and do we underdose them? And that's that's something that we run into a lot yes. is that we get there and we ask them, well, they give some Tylenol. How much? Five milliliters. Uh, yeah. I don't know. That, little cup, that little cup. The little cup. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. A half a cup. Well, what the box said. Yeah. Well, no. <laughs> so, but then you're looking at a, a five-year-old that maybe is uh, malnourished for whatever reason, or you look at a, a big five-year-old. It's it's a true weight-based medicine when you're treating temperature, and a lot of a lot of kids get underdosed with your temperature management, honestly. And go well your your Tylenol and Motrin box I mean people parents come in all the time well I did what the box said to give well I'm here to tell you you know Tylenol and Motrin as companies they're going to CYA with that box yep. they do not want any overdoses coming back on them because it, it they know they have a usually they underdose by about half so if you look up any of your literature and like elementary terms like if you go to Hippocrates or sites like that it will say for Motrin 5 to 10 whereas we're always going to dose 10 or Tylenol is 7 or 8 up to 15 we always dose 15 and you know they that's just a you know cover your butt kind of thing the other thing I'll mention here since we're talking temperature and everybody in this room including the guys behind the camera have seen this on your little kids, your little baby, especially your neonates, you got to really be careful rewarming those kids when they get cold for whatever reason. You know, you were working on them, they were sick, you're doing whatever you had to do. Um, but you start rewarming these kids and they really want to relax on you. And they'll relax in a couple ways. They'll, you know, start hypoperfusing in some cases if they're super shocky initially. But I think the big thing we always see is when we throw them in that isolate to warm them up, you better watch them for a minute. Even if you're not putting them in an isolate, just say you've got them under a warmer, they really don't want to breathe anymore. Yeah. Their body's just like, oh, okay, I can totally chill now. And before you know, you're having to bag this baby and maybe even ultimately intubate them because of that. So it's just something to be cognizant of. You know, people, I don't know, we hear it probably once a month in the ER, like we started warming this kid back up and they just started dropping their sats and would have these breath holding spells or apneic spells and 
It's just it's just their path path of physiology. That's the way they respond to it. So it's always something to be cognizant of and think about and have in the back of your mind as you're rewarming them. Just be careful about it. The thing with well, there's so many kids that I've both on ambulance and flown over the year to get, and they you pick them up out of the house or whatever, and they're trying to warm them up. They may have them like wrapped in 15 blankets, but if you warm them up slow and steady a lot of times a kid will get better on their own they may look like hey i'm fixing to start every line put them on five pressers and intubate them and all the you know all the all the terrible things we really don't want to have to do yeah and get there and go let me just warm the kid up for a minute watch them i mean you're watching them like a hawk but watch them and whether you the thermal mattress or you're using hot packs and stuff stuff in between it obviously don't put that straight on the skin but warming the kid up usually fixes a lot of their problem yeah and prevents other problems yeah from from either manifesting itself or exacerbating the problem right so you know just recently just because it's fresh on my mind you know we we went uh, for a 25 weeker you know i I remember the days when i got medicine at 25 weeks really wasn't a viable option um and now we're delivering them in rural hospitals and i i fully believe the staff done a phenomenal job on the, the resuscitation part of this, but this rural hospital, level four hospital, had a radiant warmer and had baby under the warmer from the time it come out. And I, I fully believe that had probably the biggest impact on a 25 week, 800 gram patient, right? Was, was temperature control. Definitely. 100%. Definitely. Um, kind of going down our list, Something I ran across, SpO2, FiO2 ratios uh, came real popular in COVID. Everybody was trying to correlate a non-invasive SpO2 versus a PaO2, so your actual arterial um, oxygen saturation. Do y'all use it? It's not so common in my practice. I mean, it's one of those, hey, fun fact kind of things, but I don't don't use it every day. It got real, real trendy in the ICU's world, but. Yeah, I know they think about it a lot in your ARDS patients and ICUs, but I don't. I personally, in my practice, don't really use it from day to day. Well, it, yeah, it's not something I use either. Um, I, I think it's a neat tool, yeah. uh, cause it, but the problem is SpO2 versus PaO2, like you said. I mean, you can have a patient on, uh, you know, they can be sitting here with a PaO2 of 100% and showing a SpO2 of 97%, but they're sitting here on a FiO2 of 100. I mean, if you do that, that ratio everything on that board looks good at that point but if you actually do your fio2 ratios and stuff like that patient's got like a 126 you know uh, pf ratio which is not good you want around that 400 mark so we can it 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 is very helpful but you can also get wrapped up in the weeds trying to fix it it does tell me some hypoxic states and all that but if you're not careful you can you can run down a rabbit trail with your your pf uh your FiO2 ratios and stuff like that. Um, and then you start getting off in your oxy dissociation curve, oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve, and there's a whole nother rabbit trail to run down. So, I think it, it's one of those things, I think it can guide you long-term better in the ICU. I think in emergent resuscitation, it's not as yeah. big of an indicator. I think what we're doing in transport emergency medicine world, I think the, the oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve is the, the thing that, I guess visually you think about and and I think long term ICU days on a ventilator RTs they kind of get off into the the FI ratios and stuff like that and because that you know that 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 says that's ABGs that we 
so may may or may not have in the, in the transport world. Um, trending those, be able to get ABGs actually know what their PO2 is and be able to adjust the ventilator. And then you get into that whole ventilator adjustment as well. What FIO2 do I need to get this CO2, this partial CO2 and O2 and, and bicarb and all. And those, you can get way off in the weeds in that. And I just don't think that's what we're doing here. And then again, do you have the ability to trend that number? You know, I made all these adjustments, but did these adjustments benefit the patient? And outside certain transport environments where you're not able to draw those ABGs and stuff like that, we're not, you know, we're going to get fixated on something we really don't have a way to monitor. And and are you with them long enough to his point? Are are we with them long enough to see if it worked? And we carry our stats, we check ABGs, we put art lines in, we do all of that. But... 30 minutes did we really know if we affected their respiratory and their ventilation status um you know we see a snapshot picture of it which is why i think we use that dissociation curve visually from a from a transport of we're looking at their spo2 we're looking to make sure that number's good maybe a po2 we run a, an art uh, an abg and then looking at entitle um to be able to tell if we're giving up a, a perfusion ventilation um mismatch or not i think it's important just to be familiar with it i mean i think the place where you'd see it most in transport is you go to this, you know, say level two ICU somewhere. They've had this patient, this ARDS patient there for a few days and they have been trending it. So you can look at those numbers and see what you're getting, that you're picking up, that you may be flying an hour and a half to wherever, driving two hours wherever. And you kind of know from that standpoint, at least know what that is, know what that's about, know what that's looking at. And to his point and to your point is, just knowing what it is, knowing what it is, knowing how to read the numbers, because you may go to a ICU that's been trending it, but doesn't know how to read it. And so you may actually be the one that actually reads it, interprets it, and adjusts that yeah. setting for that patient to be able to do that. So I think a familiarity with it is, is important, but I don't know that we're using it every day, um, if, if hardly at all, to be honest with you, in, in transport world. Um. Moving on down, shock index. So to bring up Aiden's point earlier of using blood pressure and heart rate, so using two things at once, um, how much do you use shock index? We all know if it's greater than 0.9 or 90%, it's a good indicator of, hey, there's a problem or they're truly in shock. Do you use shock indexes, hey, I know the number, or do I use, understand the theory more behind it and apply that theory? I think it should be used. I'm, I'm up there with Matt on with my shock index, especially on, and it doesn't have to be a trauma patient, but um, inside the trauma world, yeah, your shock indicator is is a good driving factor on a lot of things like pulling trigger on blood versus pulling trigger on pressors and stuff like that. Fluids uh, in the pediatric world, you know, it's and it's also a trending process for me. I am a big shock index person. I think it's good to trend. Um... maybe for the first time on one of these podcasts, I'll disagree and say I don't use it very often. (laughs) Um, I I tend, when I'm thinking of that shock state, and not that it's wrong to use it. I mean, I think it's a great tool. I just lean more on my patient assessment when I'm looking at that kind of thing, Um, especially in in a shock state. I'm always looking at, you know, when we'll get to this, but in titles, constantly something I'm staring at, urine output, mental status changes, um, and maps. I'm staring more at the map. Now, 
with all that, can I use the shock index from everything I've gathered? Absolutely, I can to help me pair that together. And I think that's a good tool to use. And it's another trending tool, I would say. If I'm sitting on this patient for a while in the ER, they don't have ICU bed, I can see where I'm going, see if that number's getting better. That's my take on it. A shock index, just to, to go over that formula for, for those listening, heart rate divided by our systolic blood pressure. So whatever their heart rate is, divided by their systolic blood pressure. And, you know, the normal range, depending on the textbook you read, is probably somewhere between 0.4 to 0.7. Um, instead of getting off into the decimals, what we're looking at, in my opinion, is if it's less than one, yep. I'm probably yeah. okay. And if it's greater than one, because one and a whole number makes life easy for us. Um, so less than one, and I, I, I think I agree with both of them. Um, I don't know that in a true resuscitative shock state that I'm thinking shock index. No. But I think... Uh, I'm, I'm looking at patient assessment to Aiden's point, but I think 40 minutes later, once I've kind of stopped chasing my tail a little bit, yeah. I can look back at those numbers and look at my shock index of where I've started to where I am and say, have I made a difference? Is the patient trending up? Did I miss something? Did I Should I have given blood instead of pressures because I'm still shocky and those type things? And so I think it's a combination of the, of the two of what they said from a shock index. It's not something that I look at and I do the math in my head while I'm looking at a patient on the bed, but it is something that I, I, I use to see what I'm, if I'm benefiting the patient and improving them at all. For me, it's more of a theory. Like I understand it's systolic, the correlation between systolic blood pressure and heart rate. And so I know high heart rate, low systolic blood pressure in my head, everybody yeah. thinks shock. And I think, right. hey, shock, high shock index. So it's more of a theoretical conversation, not necessarily the actual number the number yeah. to yeah. your point now 40 minutes later when i have yeah. time to give him blood it. and pressures yeah. and all these things and i'm like all right which way do i want to go with this yeah then i kind of back off and figure out some numbers and go i went from a suction index of 1.8 to now i'm at 1.2 or whatever um but it's more the theoretical for me and it's a big picture right i mean was their heart rate up because they were in pain talking about trauma yeah. like I mean, so that so that skews your shock index right there and so you've got to make sure that that everything is, is kind of self-contained when you're using all these formulas, not just shock index. And, it, and to bring it up, something else is their septic patient, they've been intubated, they got rock, and they haven't been adequately sedated. I mean, it, is that part of correlation? you got to look at it from – when I look at shock index, I think of more of, hey, is the whole picture complete? Is everything mm-hmm. lined out? And then I can get a good mm-hmm. – you can get a good number. It can be clouded by so many points, mm-hmm. as, as you mentioned. Um. We did a whole entire episode on entitled CO2, but bring it up as far as a vital sign, I think it's truly vital. It's one of those things. We we use it, I know we use it in our teams here every day on every patient, it seems like. Um, Anybody sick is going to get it. What is there a certain trigger you use to say, hey, somebody's sick enough for entitled CO2, or is there something, and then what's the number, what are the numbers you're comfortable with? What does it tell you for for y'all's perspective? First off, it's so easily accessible nowadays. Mm-hmm. Now, it used to, when Entitel first made its way into the pre-hospital world, they had to be intubated. Yeah. And, and now that's, that's taken away. Um, now, there is some, some complications there on because you got your different waveforms. Yes, the waveforms are true, but you're looking at, the, at a slightly different waveform via nasal cannula. But still, I'm not necessarily so much looking at the waveform. That does play a very important role. Don't get me wrong there, but you're also looking at numbers. 
Um, yeah. And you can correlate those numbers with your maps and stuff. I mean, you can look at direct correlation between those other vital signs. And entitled has it, it hurts me that it took this long to come into play. I think that's the biggest leap we've taken in the last, I don't know, five years maybe, maybe less than that. I think that's the biggest leap that we've taken is understanding entitled CO2 is not a solely respiratory number. No and understanding perfusion. We learned it when we were in school. I mean, we learned the path, I mean, we learned all that patho. We learned the, the byproducts of cellular metabolisms and we, like, we learned all that and we forgot about it. And now all of a sudden it's finally getting its way back into understanding that entitled CO2 not only gives you waveforms from a respiratory pattern, but it also gives you a perfusion status. Are we metabolizing or not? Um, you know, it's one of the, one of the in, inclusions to you know, uh, res terminating resuscitative efforts. You know, you're in titles with positive chest compressions, good chest compressions, positive airway, you know, are in titles less than in the single digits. That's an inclusion now of terminating resuscitative efforts. And so I, I'm glad that we've moved to that. Again, I think it's something that we learned, but I think to Ben's point, because until, you know, recently you had to have somebody that was intubated to be able to do entitle, and then maybe, or maybe we didn't, maybe our monitors at our, at our ambulance service didn't have the entitle capability until we upgraded whatever time that may be next. And so, but now with the cannula options, it's, it's just super easy to be able to get that number. And even to your, not an intubated patient, somebody that's not intubated, but still relatively sick, and maybe you're trying to not intubate that patient. Yes. You throw them on that adult, um, you know, or pediatric nasal cannula with the entitle option, and it gives you a perfusion status and a ventilator status. You know, ventilation and, and perfusion are two different things, right? We talk about separating those two, but that entitle gives you all three. It gives you, you know, your ventilation, your oxygenation, and your perfusion status in, in a simple step nowadays. And I also look at it, I have to make things dumb for me, myself to understand. So I look at it too, especially with a pediatric in, in age world, and he might disagree with me on this, but in my mind, for that number to pop up on that monitor and for that gas to pass by that sensor, three things must be present. There must be oxygen present, and there must be pressure to drive that gas to that sensor, and there's got to be sugar that takes place for you go into that whole mm -hmm. Krebs cycle. So going into Aiden's world there, you, especially in the pediatric world, what's that blood sugar? Because what's the main thing that we check a lot in a pediatric world in a sick pediatric kid? Yeah. Blood sugar. And without that sugar there to help produce that CO2, you know, is that's what our problem is. we got low CO2s. Well, as silly as it sounds, I say, okay, well, let's check a sugar. Let's check all the simple, obvious things yeah. before we run in here and start aggressively treating a kid or a, an adult in that situation. Uh, in title, I mean, I think it's just like, it's just so it's so many different ways you can go with it. So many things it can tell you, and you can. You know, we've had a podcast on it, and you can get books on it now, textbooks on it, and you can get super in the weeds. But just think about, like Ben was saying, just the basics that it gives you. Like I can tell perfusion status to Don's point. I can tell you know acidosis status when they're intubated. Not so much on a cannula, but when they're intubated, I can really see what's going on acidosis wise. I can tell if they're breathing. I can tell if they're breathing too fast, if they're breathing too slow. I mean, just basic things you can get right off the bat. Those four or five things are huge when you're taking care of a sick patient. So, you know, if you're not using it in your practice, those out there listening, I encourage you to a little yeah. bit more. We hadn't finished yet, but if 
if there was a vital sign that if you're not using, you should be, is this one. Yeah. I, I don't think there's – I think that's easy. Yeah. Yeah, and when I was going through this list, I mean, there's three on these things that, you know, really jump out to me, and that that's one yeah. temperature and map, like, and we've hit those all pretty hard. Yeah. And this is definitely right up there with them. Something else we bring on down our list is, is urine output. It's not everybody's favorite thing to look at, but it tells you a lot to me, um, especially about what's going on and what's getting perfused. How do y'all use urine output? Is it something that um, – just how do you use it? What what is it? What does it do for y'all? What does it tell you? I I think it goes back to our map conversation. Yeah, I, I think it tells us if we're perfusing our end organs. Yeah. You know, there could obviously be some traumatic injury to the kidneys or the the urinary system, and um, you know, maybe you got blood in the urine and all that kind of stuff. But just without a blunt trauma injury to the kidneys, it tells me if I'm perfusing or not. If I'm if those kidneys are functioning, it tells me my volume status. Um, you know those type things and again i'm a whole number type of guy I don't, i'm not a decimal guy right yeah. i mean I, even with epi like 0.01 i not a 10 mics it works yeah. better for me whole yeah. numbers right no decimals mm-hmm. again peds an adult one mil per key per hour now you can get super concentrated in the icu you, i understand that and there's there are goals that they're reaching right but from a transport emergency medicine world i think one mil per key across the board, adult impedes, one mil per key per hour, I guess I need to make sure that's in there. But, you know, once they see a urine per, per their weight in kilograms every hour, I'm, I'm okay with that. I like that number. Yeah. I really pay attention to volume status with urine output. Yeah. I mean, it's like being a saying, I have to dumb it down for myself sometimes. At the end of the day, if patient's making urine, yeah. that means they've got some leftover to spare. Exactly. So everything has got, everything in the body has what it needs for urine to be produced right so i just take it back to that basic premise if i don't have it my volume status probably sucks if i do have it and it's adequate maybe you know they may be overloaded but i know everything is at least getting perfused at that point and on and on the ground transport side of it and i I tell my paramedic students all the time i'm like you know what's one of the first things we ask them hey can you put a foley in mainly because we don't want them peeing on our stretchers right but let's utilize that as a tool like don said it's it's a great trending tool. What did this patient come into the CER for? Why am I taking them to big level one somewhere? All right, this is why. Okay, what did you do for this patient? This did it work? It worked right now, but now going down the road, I can sit here and just a simple lean over in my bench seat and look down. And I'm like, oh yeah, we started out at 100. We're 40 minutes into this transport, and now we're at 300. So we're putting off some urine. So that lets us know that yes, that treatment that they did do is working for this patient or the treatment that I'm doing. And like he just said, the body's used up what it's needed. Now it's getting rid of what it doesn't need. So things are working, maybe not the best, but they're working. Just a couple of little things. One of my biggest pet peeves is you walk in and get a handoff from another another provider or patient, uh, nurse or whoever, and they're, they go, oh, well, there's there's 500 in the bag. Okay, well, what what was your initial output? That Because the initial output was in the bladder. What what's your initial output, and then what do we had from there, or even like spinning it around and taking a sharpie and marking it, like hey, this is I started off at twelve hundred. My memory's not quite as good as it used to, and I, I'm like Don. I like whole numbers sometimes, so I just say, hey, start at twelve hundred. I know on the back of that bag when I get to if I'm going from Meridian to Jackson, that's a forty minute flight. I know that in forty minutes when I get drop off here at Jackson, whether it's St. D. UMC Baptist, whatever. 
and I look over and go, hey, they've had 400 out. Oh, I'll start at 1,200, now it's 1,600, that's 400. Cool, I can do the math, it's simple. Um, those little simple tricks to trend, hey, again, you can you can use it to trend vasopressors, how high you're going, how low you're going, your volume stats. I like, I like what you said about volume. It's all got a little left over, great, it's, it's working okay. And here's another thing too, and again, dumb it down. When you bring a patient into these big hospitals and you've got providers that are walking up, and if it's not below them to reach down and look down at a Foley bag and ask you, hey, what, how much have they put out? That should be an indicator for you as a transporter yeah. That might be an important thing to monitor. I mean, if a doctor or a practitioner thinks that that's important in their initial start in their care, maybe I should think it's important while I transport this patient. I'm going to tell you what, I get thrilled when I've picked up a sick shock patient wherever and we load them in the helicopter and say it's nighttime and I can't see the Foley bag. And when we get to where we're going, now I can see urine. It means yeah, I've done yeah, something. Yeah. I felt like I'm, I've accomplished something. something. Yeah. Um. Next on our list is mental status, uh, specifically GCS. So it's common staple across emergency medicine, um, training in ICU care, neurosurgery, loves it every day. Um, GCS, what are y'all's thoughts? So first off, a GCS can't be a zero, right? Yeah. We've yeah. all heard it. Yeah. Have we not? I mean, <laughs> I just, can't, just, be, can't be lower than three. three. Like, 32. Can't yeah. be higher than 15. Yeah, so, so get that out of the 15. way. Let's just knock that out. Right so just apart. to knock that out right out the gate, right? It's three to 15. Um, as something that, um, it's something that we probably don't use enough, to be honest with you. I mean, I think we get, I think we probably come up with a number at some point during our transport, but uh, we probably don't use it enough, especially to be honest with you, in the ground transport side, I, I don't think we use it when we go to somebody's house and pick somebody up on a 911 call on a wreck. I don't think that's a normal vital sign. That that probably needs to change, that there needs to be more inclusion on that. But the understanding of what numbers you're getting, first of all, again, 3 to 15, um, and then understanding, you know, that uh, the eyes is, is simply the eye opening. It's, it's not necessarily their mental status. You can be alert and confused. Right, I, I hear that a lot of times too. Right, you, alert and oriented uh, doesn't, uh, you know, doesn't mean that you can't be alert and disoriented. I can be aware of everything happening around me and not know what in the world's going on. And so, it's just simply the eye opening on that first number, right? One through four. Do they notice you when you walk in the room? Right? Do they notice somebody else showed up? You know, they track when you go across the room, or do you have to call their name? You know, or do you have to inflict pain? Those are four, three, two, and then if they don't do anything, if they don't open their eyes, then that's a one. Uh, and, and a lot of people get, there's a, the, the motor people get kind of jumbled up on, but a lot of people miss the whole eye-opening part of the, the first number. Is, is it strictly just eye-opening? What are they doing with their mentation? Uh, it has nothing to do with their, you know, oriented or not. It has to do with their eye-opening. I'll let somebody else take the other numbers. I, I. <laughs> uh, another thing I think a lot of transport people, you know, ground EMS I see coming into the ER, they, they're worried about telling me the wrong number for their GCS. I will accept a range. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 10 to 12 is fine. 8 to 9 is fine. You, I don't need a biblical number. <laughs> like, that's okay. Like, just get a ballpark it for me. That way I know where we're headed. I like, I like numbers. Uh, I like I like saying the ranges. To me, the ranges, if you go by the TBI range of severe, moderate, mild, yeah. normal, uh, I don't like the word normal, but totally with it, or dinged, if you might say, 
that tells you more than anything else. Everybody locked up in school at any level of medicine, less than eight, you intubate. I don't necessarily agree with that. And I don't necessarily agree with, hey, we have to calculate a GCS so we can figure out if we have to intubate somebody. Because, I mean, how many times have we all gone to get mamma or grandpa that maybe lives at a six or a seven? And, you know, what do you do there? Exactly. What is the what's the patient's baseline? Where do they live? Yeah, that baseline, the the assessment investigative part of what we're doing whenever we go to these places, whether it be their house, whether it be the nursing home, whether it be the inner facility transports, is is what's their baseline because that tells me a lot. Um, if if you look at it at face value, less than eight intubate probably is appropriate, but again, it's kind of um, it's kind of like that whole word normal vital signs and hemodynamically stable. What What is their pathology? What is their normal status? Not necessarily what the, the textbook says. That's, that's what I mean when I say it. I don't, everybody's a little different. So where do they live normally? What is that? If we lived in a perfect world, great. Yeah. But there's so many comorbidities out there that you, you, you can't operate that way. And just for the record, you do not need a fancy machine to calculate a GCS, all you need is that thing between your ears. You would be surprised <laughs> how many times I've taken report on the phone and I've heard we don't have that kind of equipment here to calculate a GCS and I know my eyes get just as big <laughs> as possible and shake my head and move on. But Speaking of that, are we getting one of those? Yes. Okay. <laughs> yeah. that's, on the, that's, that's on the next capital budget. Yeah, I spoke awesome. with our director recently. <laughs> um, Moving down the list, so vital signs often overlooked. Um, pain. It's uh, all I'm gonna say. I mean, Be nice to your patients. I mean, come on. Right. Especially, everybody knows that a femur fracture hurts. Everybody knows that you know a pelvic fracture hurts or broken arm, things like that. Where Will mentioned it earlier. You know, you've got this patient that may be intubated and, you know, I know a lot of the times and we've all heard it and I'm sure most of you guys have too. And when's the last sedation or pain medicine they got? Well, we gave them sucks 20 minutes ago. Again, when's the last (laughs) sedation or pain medicine they got? (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, that stuff hurts, guys. Tubes, lines, you moving this patient around constantly on top of everything else they have going on, they don't deserve to be in pain with whatever's happening, you know, whether it's a little pain or a lot of pain and, you know, appropriate treatment for pain, like ibuprofen, Tylenol may be enough, may not be enough. It may need, they may need fentanyl or Dilaudid depending on where you are. But, you know, and I know we all get those and this is more so in the ER world versus pre-hospital providers. And even though it still happens there is you're going to get your abusers things like that and you're like man my gosh and we always give this person this much and it never does anything and you know I, I think they're pulling my leg whatever but again and we're all taught and we've all heard pain is what the patient says it is right and who who are we to say that it's not that so and to i mean you you talk to kind of jump on the drug issue there for a second uh, just flew on recently, and that was the main thing. And the nursing staff literally met us in the ambulance bay as we're getting out of the aircraft, and they're like, "Please give this patient something." I'm like, "What do you mean? Uh, she's hurting." I'm sitting here in my mind thinking, "Man, you're an ER. What, why are you waiting on me to give them something why for pain?" <laughs> and um, and they're like, "Well, she tested positive for 
or you know the patient tested positive for a drug and so they didn't want to cause any problems by giving any more medications I, I don't care if the patient's high I mean, if they're high and they're still exhibiting pains and they've got the injuries and the mechanism right. there, it's pain. And when I come off the truck and work in the ER before coming back into the transport world, one of the worst things I ever heard was chest pain patients. And it kind of piggybacks on what he said a second ago, take care of your patient, was, well, how much pain medicine did y'all give them? Well, I didn't give them any because I wanted you guys to see that they were hurting. Yeah. Do what? Please, please. <laughs> Do what? Well, I didn't, I didn't you know... I didn't want to mask any problems, okay? Now let's talk about what Don said earlier. This all goes back to a good patient assessment. Be an advocate and be the, be the eyes and ears and mouth for that patient when you come in. There's no reason that you should have an MI patient rolling in still hurting because hurting in an MI still means there is ischemia. Yeah. And you don't want to stop the chest pains because you want the practitioner to see that they're hurting. The best example I know of that is a brachial plexus injury. So I've had it. I've had it a couple times over the years and they, not the injury itself, but having patients with them and somebody outside provider or somebody I'm picking up from ambulance, whatever, they're like, well, I didn't want to give them anything because I think they may have nerve damage on one of my severe assessment. You talk to anybody at definitive care level center and I've been all over the Southeast with them and all of them will tell you, if you can articulate the assessment to me, I don't care how much Dilaudid you gave them. Yeah, like I like it's there. We'll do an MRI. We'll figure it out. MRI is an emergency thing, usually ER medicine, but or emergency medicine. But the brachial plexus, you need an MRI. So get a good assessment before you do it. Obviously, if you can, but then load them up, man. Because and it, and to sum all this up, this is not every one of these topics are not just solo topics on their own. They're right. they're vital signs plural for a reason you know you have to utilize everything that we talked in, into one aspect for that particular patient at that point so you talk about your heart rate so if you are somebody that uses shock index or you know pain as you said earlier is going to obscure that shock index so let's go eliminate that pain do we are we still tachycardic at this point i've done loaded this person with enough pain medicine that i think should take care of this mechanism of injury and we're still tachycardic so now we've eliminated one possibility that we might have an increased shock index on this patient. So, yeah. Definitely. Guys, anything else you got to add for the vital signs that we missed? No. I guess pretty well covers uh, most everything in resuscitated medicine. So, again, appreciate your time today, guys. Yep. Thanks, for, uh, yes, thanks for coming on the pod.